Hey there, Shiro listeners, Saturn Dave here, reminding you that you must play Sega Saturn, and that it's contributions from listeners like you that help keep this and our other shows hosted and available on demand. In addition to our website, SegaSaturnShiro.com, where you can find all of the most up-to-date news and information from around the Sega Saturn scene. If you'd like to show your support and gain access to several perks, visit Patreon.com slash ShiroMediaGroup to become a Patreon supporter. If a monthly donation isn't possible, no worries. We still value your support in liking and sharing our content on social media and joining our Discord community to become a part of the Saturn conversation. Thank you for being a loyal listener and a part of this great community. And as always, Fabled software house treasure graced the Saturn with three games. Surely they were all bona fide hits, right? Welcome to Sega Saturn Shiro, the only podcast to measure the pleasure found in the games from treasure. Hello folks and welcome to another episode of the Sega Saturn Shiro podcast. My name is Peter and I'm here today with Dave, Saturn Dave, as well as Ben. Hello gentlemen. What's up? Good morning. Hey, how's it going? So we've got an amazing cast lined up for you guys today, but uh, before we dive into our main topic, let's do what we always do and just talk a little bit about personal updates. And I think I'm going to pick on uh, you first today, Ben. Um, what have you been up to since the last time we recorded? Oh, man. So uh, I've been working on my game room a little bit more, uh, just kind of sprucing it up, uh, updating the wall of collection, and uh, been playing a lot of, um, let's see, uh, I just started GTFO with a friend of mine. Uh, that's this four-player game on the PC that uh, you basically, it's like a squad-based sneaking around and collecting certain items and you're trying to escape. It, it kind of plays along in the same vein as... Uh, uh, Dead by Daylight, uh, that's the game. And uh, so it's a lot of fun to do. We've been um, just started on that one. It's a lot of fun. Another one that I've been playing a lot of was uh, Tears of the Kingdom, the, the new one. And uh, that is a very long game. We are, um, we've are we been put a lot of hours in that. And uh, so we've been having a lot of fun there. Is it similar to Breath of the Wild? Like, I, I've, I do have Breath of the Wild, but I haven't had a chance to play it yet. Oh. I mean, does it... Is it like a continuation oh, or, or? Absolutely. So you don't have to play Breath of the Wild to get into this game. If you wanted to jump directly into Tears of the Kingdom, it's totally fine. But that being said, is it takes place in the same world. Okay, so um, so you got Hyrule on the you know the surface and everything. Uh, but what it ends up doing for Tears of the Kingdom, you now have the depths, which is under Hyrule, and you also have the sky area, which is above Hyrule. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are two areas that you weren't able to access in the first game. And so now you have all of these changes that have happened uh, to the land and the area. And you'll see things if you had played the first game that you'll be like, oh, I recognize this. This is where I did that fight and all this. And, and, um, mm. but so that is the big difference of playing the first game first, the Breath of the Wild, and then go into Tears of the Kingdom. But it is absolutely not required. You can jump into either one and be perfectly content. I definitely recommend that you played breath of the wild though <laughs> like uh 
What there, there's a there's a site that you can use. I think it's called ZeldaDungeon.net. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong about that, but I believe that's what it is. And it has like maps to every Zelda game, you know. And that might be. Mm-hmm. I realize you're limited on time, you know, because that's always the the issue. Is time is just the great enemy. If if we only had like, you know, a, a wormhole that we could step into and just, you know, be yeah. detached from time, we could just sit there and play video games all day, right? But um, with Breath of the Wild, it is gonna, you know, it's gonna demand some of your time, but it is an amazing game and a rewarding uh, gaming experience. I think that if you probably go in with a map like that where you can kind of I guess cheat a little bit and kind of know where you need to go next and stuff like that that'll definitely help cut down on a lot of the uh, I guess I'm, I'm afraid to say exploration you know which is part of the whole mm-hmm, point mm-hmm. but again like it's just really hard for dads <laughs> and like full-time workers you know to to sink that much time into a video game so unless you like break a leg or something like that and you're up for a week you know so but yeah, I, you know, Tears of the Kingdom is is great. Tears of the Kingdom, like Ben said, is an expansion on the original game. It's even more ambitious, you know, your ability to build things. So when you start with Breath of the Wild and you've got the land and it was amazing, everybody loves that game. And then you go into Tears of the Kingdom where you introduce the lower and the upper territories. I have this theory that for the third game... Uh, that I think this is going to be a trilogy and that's going to be it. Uh, But I bet you in this third game, you're going to be able to travel forward and backwards through time Mm. in your, in Hyrule. Now I bet you that's what they're going to do. That's an interesting, yeah, they could be, they really love to do that kind of stuff where they have like a light and dark dynamic or, you know, up and down forwards and backwards in time, you know, with twilight princess, you, you got to go back and forth between the twilight realm and, and, and then, you know, with the link between worlds, you go, you know, into like the wall and into this other dimension. So I wouldn't be surprised, Ben, if they do that. Absolutely. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but ben, Peter, I, I know it's funny. Like you say, like, I I have this game and I haven't played it. And um, I, the same thing goes for me. Like I have so many Switch games that I haven't played. Like I haven't actually really mm-hmm. played through Metroid Dread yet. I, I played through like the first portion of it and it's incredibly impressive, but I haven't beaten it because I just haven't had the time. In, in terms of what I've been up to game wise. Um, so I've actually gone back into tinkering with the floppy disk drive and, and trying, you know, a whole bunch of different oh, games I've seen that. Yeah. out. It's awesome. Yeah. That, and I've discovered a bunch of other uh, retail games that do work with it. So I'll be, you know, putting that out at uh, some future point uh, for folks to tinker with and some some surprises anyways. So that's fun. Um, but the other thing is, you know, back in the day, we're going back, say, 15, 20 years or so, I had a pretty massive Nintendo 64 collection. Sold it all a long time ago, no regrets. It was the right thing to do for me at the time. But the one thing that I did keep out of that entire collection is just simply a console and obviously all the hookups and everything and a controller. Um, I wondered what it would be like to sort of get back into Nintendo 64 and, you know, prices being what they are, I figured the most economic way to do that would be through an EverDrive. So I got myself uh, an EverDrive and I loaded it up with, you know, the games that I have fond memories of and whatever. But the other sort of missing piece to that was I... 
I absolutely detest the Trident controller. I hate everything about it. I hate its shape. I hate the, you know, the the joystick, all of it. It's just garbage to me. So I reached out to my local community here in Calgary for, um, you know, folks' experiences with some aftermarket, you know, third-party wireless N64 controllers. And uh, just based on recommendations, I settled on the Retro Fighters uh, wireless right. controller for the N64. Oh, good choice. And yeah. Oh my goodness, night and day. It absolutely changed changes my entire experience with that console. So now I've got my N64, I've got my EverDrive, and I've got this amazing, amazing controller, which really it's a it's a for me it's a complete game changer with N64. So mm-hmm. I've been diving back into it and which game do I start with? The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. So I'm actually working through that particular Zelda game, absolutely using the Zelda Dungeon website that you had mentioned, Dave, because, you know, time constraints and whatever kind of helps move me along. And I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's you know, it's a lot of fun. Um, was, you know, I was never really super big on the Nintendo 64. And it, to me, it will never, of course, be, you know, uh, a better experience than the Saturn, obviously, but but it's not as bad as I remember it. And I think the controller, to be honest, had a lot to do with that. So That's it's just been a huge sort of, you know, it just, it it's that much of a difference. Oh, I don't like the controller. Don't get me wrong. But like my nostalgia, mm-hmm. it's like, this is, this is right. <laughs> this feels right. I'm like, mm-hmm, it has mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. this like really weird experimental controller that is just, like they're just throwing ideas at the wall, you know, and, and that weird little stick in the middle that kind of like feels a bit awkward. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody thought that the, the Saturn's analog nipple or nub, whatever, it was kind of weird, you know, but come on, like the stick for the N64 controller is just like so prone to getting worn out, you know, and uh, it's, just, sure. it's not a great design. But for whatever reason, like mm-hmm. if I'm playing a Nintendo 64, I have to have that awkward controller in my hand because that's just a part of the experience for me. And every single one of those sticks are damaged after one playthrough of Mario Party. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. And you, you, you would have to give. You yes. would, oh, yes. The, you know, waggling it back and forth for those uh, what should have been motion controls. Right. You know, but instead you got just mm-hmm. people just hammering on that stick. But. Honestly, I think that I've I've had to do repairs of my controllers a couple times, like to tighten that thing up. Uh, and now, from mm-hmm. what I understand, it's pretty easy to just buy a replacement. Um, I even what is it? Even uh, Retrobit, I think, just put out like a replacement stick that you can easily just swap in. Because, oh right, yeah. So yeah, like a kit. It, right? It's not. It's yeah. It's just like the thing. The thing itself. The unit itself. You you un unscrew your controller and just swap it in. It's that easy. So, um, mm-hmm. I mean, that, at least Nintendo did that much. You know, they made it uh, easy to swap in and out. But yeah, I've I've had to repair a couple of those sticks. Um, and you know, so, for what it's worth, my absolute positive experience with this controller as of this recording and we're recording in mid-august of 2023 just a few days ago retro fighters announced that they are uh producing a dreamcast version oh yeah wireless dreamcast that is you know very very similar in look and shape to their nintendo 64 uh mm-hmm. control pad and so i pre-ordered it right away nice. because as much as i love my dreamcast and i love my dreamcast that controller is not the easiest to work with for me so 
I am just over the moon that I'll be able to sort of dive back into to Dreamcast, yeah. you know, full on and just really, really enjoy it. Because like I said, uh, you know, I wasn't overly big on N64, but that controller just was, it just made a huge, huge difference for me. So again, for me, it's like as bad as it is, it's like part of that system's identity, you know? I mean, I don't know. I don't disagree with you. Like if it comes to like playing a, a fighting game, I won't be playing it on the Dreamcast paddle or use like a stick, you know, um, or I'll mm-hmm. use like a Saturn pad with a, with an adapter. But yeah, the, the Dreamcast controller again is just like a huge part of that console's identity, you know? So holding that in my hands, it's like, I know I'm like, okay, I'm playing the Dreamcast. I've got this big chunky, awkward, unwieldy thing in my hands. <laughs> and like, Ben, I know you're a huge Dreamcast guy. What is your opinion of that controller? Uh, okay, I actually have a love-hate relationship with that controller because I think it's absolutely amazing. It feels really good in your grips. The triggers are fantastic. Uh, the little display thing with the memory card that goes in, that was a brilliant idea. Um, the only thing that's really missing on that controller is a right analog stick. And so you've got games like Mm. MDK2, which absolutely need technically two analog sticks. They just kind of simulate an analog stick with the buttons on the right hand side. That was kind of what I feel like was a Dreamcast downfall is they didn't account for the fact that we actually needed to have movement in that form on that side of the controller. Other than that, I think it's a brilliant controller. It really is comfortable. It works well. The uh, um, Everybody's controller that they still have the original, they snap really, really well. The, the joysticks are really responsive. Uh, you don't ever really see any of them with any dead spaces. Uh, the buttons are really good. I, I really like it. I think it's a great controller. You know, it reminds me, um, the Saturn pad, which I guess came, the 3D pad, which came before the Dreamcast controller, you know, the Dreamcast controller is arguably an evolution of that. Like, I know it used magnets as part of um, its analog implementation and so therefore yeah yeah so it's not prone to there's no stick drift there's no nothing and you're right about that like those dreamcast controllers are like tanks that i you know i have so many of them and i've used the living daylights out of a lot of them and they're they're just fine there's you know they're they're solid so i will give you that that's that's for sure i will say yeah the the 3d analog stick on the dreamcast uh, doesn't wear out as much as the 3D analog on the Saturn, you know, because that one, when I'm playing nights, it just kind of like crunches and grinds and stuff like that. You know what I mean? You're doing those para loops. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. really. And it, when you get into that where you're like trying to beat your yourself, you're trying to beat your own score, you really just start to go hard on the controller, you know, because you're just trying to pull off the most precise acrobatics. And, um, Mm-hmm. that really wears it out over time to where I can't get like a real good feeling paraloop, you know, uh, like it always grinds mm-hmm. on the bottom right corner a little bit. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to fix that on mine, but that doesn't happen on the Dreamcast one because they, they kind of improved that design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, we're 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 gonna eat up most of our time talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what we should we should, you're right we should move on. What have you been up to, my friend? Oh my god, so much on the Saturn front. We had a huge uh, like document leak uh, on on Saturn or on Sega in general, but it like it was the fiscal year 1997 brand review and they were looking back on 96 and saying you know where did we go wrong and stuff this was a document that ended up on ebay and it got purchased 
um, by an individual who goes by Golden Dreamcast and he scanned it and uploaded it for the community. So huge shouts to him. And then we kind of pulled it apart, picked all the meat off the bone and, you know, went through, did different videos and Nick Panda did his take on it and did a stream on it. Like the entire community basically tore this thing apart. And what we found is that things were just looking really, really bad all the way back in the late Genesis and 32X era, you know, like Mm -hmm. in, in terms of overstock and just in terms of the deal with the devil that Tom had to do in order to do business with the big boys. Like basically Nakayama gave him just a blank check and said, do you know, I'm in charge. And I, even though all of my folks back at, you know, Sega Japan don't really agree with me, I'm just going to give you free reign to do business the way that you do, because you seem to be really successful. Well, Mm -hmm. Tom was successful and he had a lot of connections, but he had to do things a certain way in order to gain that kind of market share that he did. One of the caveats was that big retailers, you know, forced him to stock, you know, double. Basically, he had to have just as much in the warehouse as they had on order, you know, so that retailers could easily order more, you know, at the drop of a hat which was tough. And then on top of that, you know, they required him to basically buy back anything that they didn't sell. So you had like all of these profits uh, that they were reporting ended up turning into like negative, you know, going into the red, you know, once all that debt was called in basically, you know, and, you know, it also revealed uh, Sega's, you know, confidence in the Genesis, which was already growing long in the tooth and them, you know, feeling that, that taste of success that they were having on the heels of Sonic 2 and they did not want to give up on that platform. They were like, we're just getting going. You know, but Sega's like, yeah, but I mean, it's been out for what, five years and we want to move on. We have this new amazing hardware. We feel like it's going to be really successful in Japan. And once the world catches wind of it, everybody else is going to want it too. Meanwhile, you want to stick with the Genesis and you want to you know, develop this life support system called the 32X, you know, consumers are not going to buy into that. They're going to, we all knew about the Saturn and folks didn't want to spend money on something that was essentially going to be a stopgap. So, yeah, so I've reviewed that document obviously as well. And what strikes me is that they knew, they knew that the Saturn was underperforming. They knew that the games that were multi-plat were really bad on the Saturn compared to the, the PlayStation. They were accept- like they were acutely aware that they were losing this battle and that they were, you know, falling behind in, you know, retail space, in, you know, gamer mind share, etc. So obviously that's not something that you project publicly, but it's amazing to me how, you know, you just kind of realize that no, Sega of America wasn't this like naive, aloof company that just lost its way. They knew exactly what was going down. They yeah. knew their situation and, you know, it, it just is, it is what it is. I mean, they, they did the best that they could, I guess, with, yeah. uh, you know, the situation that they had. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, funny enough, right after that document leaked, then we had another, we had an interview, what was like a business lecture from Irima Jiri, who was like the former Honda president. And he ended up coming to uh, Sega of Japan to replace Nakayama. He commented on the fact that he basically had to go in and ask Tom to leave. Like he, uh, we, we've all heard the story told different ways, but essentially he gave Tom kind of like a warning. Like he said, you have one year to restructure the company and turn everything around and kind of 
at least produce some kind of profit, you know? So fire whoever you need to fire, restructure, and make the changes necessary in order to start turning a profit. Uh, a year went by, that didn't happen. So he basically said, you need to resign, you know? And um, what we've all heard is that, you know, Tom just kind of stepped down because he felt like he wasn't able to really do what he wanted to do anymore, you know? Or wasn't able to execute on his strategies, you know? The thing is, really, they, they just never should have released the 32X. And I, I don't think anybody, I'm not sure there's anybody out there who disagrees with that at this point. You know, the 32X was just a huge ball and chain for them. Even the Nomad, you know, they didn't have, they just didn't have the marketing dollars, you know, for, for one, to stretch themselves out that thin o- across so many different platforms, you know? And they really, you know, I guess felt, obligated to play point for point with Nintendo, like to copy everything Mm -hmm. Nintendo was doing. If Nintendo does a handheld, we have to do a handheld. You know, they really saw Nintendo as their competition. Sony just completely blindsided them. And Sony was just like, we are just going to focus all of our effort on this one machine and making it the best that we can. And with Sega's very limited capital compared to Nintendo and Sony, they really just should have been focusing on making the Saturn as good as it could be. And it was, you know, a a great console in Japan, a great success, you know, of course, until Sony just completely dominated eventually with Mm -hmm. uh, their RPGs and everything like that. That that never that never would have changed. You know, Sony just had so much muscle for manufacturing and marketing muscle. They were always Mm -hmm. going to be number one. But that didn't mean that Sega couldn't have been number two, you know. Um, definitely it just you know but it is what it is and you know shoulda coulda wouldas it's just interesting and, and it's fun to have that information you know that we can all kind of glean uh new insight about uh about the story and what went down um also in the meantime you know we we interviewed john lineman from df retro that was a lot of fun on editor's corner folks should check that out uh, it was kind of a casual talk about you know, Sega, Saturn, different 32-bit consoles, lots of idiosyncrasies in, in how the game systems work and stuff like that. And so that's a fun one. And then, you know, some pickups. I finally picked up a Dream Pie, so I don't have to use my laptop to get my consoles online. And I'm also able to browse the internet on my Saturn, so that's fun. Um, nice. Albeit, albeit very slow, <laughs> but it's, it's fun. You know, you check email, you can... You can send save files to friends, you know, via email. And of course, I mean, it's a dream pie. So the ultimate goal is to use it for the Dreamcast as well. But it it works with my uh, Genesis X-Band modem as well. So now now I've got my Genesis, my Saturn, and my Dreamcast all online. So, you know. That is radical. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, if, if Sega was one thing, it was definitely like ahead of the times, right? <laughs> they were always, always ahead of the times when it comes to like cutting edge technology. We know that Isao Okawa, the, uh, the chairman of Sega, was very much networking and online focused. You know, that was his dream with CSK. You know, he, he wanted the company to really focus on networking communications. So that's why there was such a push to get those consoles online from an early point. Um, I also picked up a box Dreamcast uh, just because (laughs) I I told Pat I need another Dreamcast like I need a hole in the head. But yeah, no, it was a good deal. And it's uh, basically a launch Dreamcast and it's pure white, like white as snow. Never not really been used like they played uh, columns or something on it and and then they boxed it back up. So I got that for a a song and dance and uh, it was a really good deal. That's all I can say. So I picked that up. 
That's awesome. You could never really have too many Dreamcasts. At the yeah. end of the day. <laughs> I mean, I have quite a few, but none of them are as white as this one. Like most of them are kind of like a beige. Um, and that, I'm fine with that. I don't even bother retro brighting them. I'm just like, they're, they're uniformly beige. So I'm just like, okay, none, none of them are like that cigarette smoke yellow or anything. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right. Okay, so let's move on to the main topic of our cast. And today we want to talk about Treasure Games. So Treasure, you know, very prolific uh, software company in Japan, based in Japan. And, you know, they released throughout their history what I would consider to be, you know, like more hardcore gamers type games. And they they blessed the Saturn with three releases. And essentially, you know, we saw Guardian Heroes come out in 1996. Uh, It was early 96 in Japan and about mid 96 everywhere else. They follow that up with Silhouette Mirage in September of 1997. Now, by then, the Saturn market outside of Japan was really quite precarious, so that, you know, stayed in Japan. And they figured that that would be their last Saturn title, but they did ultimately produce a third game, and that would end up being Radiant Silver Gun. Now, that was initially an arcade title that they put out, and it was on the STV Titan board, which is essentially, you know, the arcade equivalent of a Saturn. And so in July of 98, they did port that over to the Sega Saturn. And again, that stayed in Japan only. At that point, the Saturn market outside of Japan was well and truly finished. So their legacy on the Saturn is those three games, Guardian Heroes, Silhouette Mirage, and Radiant Silver Gun, with only Guardian Heroes having come out in the West. So I want to get us started talking about Guardian Heroes. Um, so, you know, just a bit of, bit of uh, background about the game. So it's a side-scrolling beat-em-up. Um, you know, you're one of a team of four adventurers. And the story is that you come across, you know, this rusty sword in the forest. And you sort of pick it up, you take it. And it turns out that the sword is, you know, this legendary powerful sword that the uh, ultimate antagonist of the game wants to get his hands on and what have you. Picking up the sword also uh, reanimates this like undead warrior guy, and he's a CPU controlled sort of helper character. And you can give him very basic commands, like you know what sort of actions he should be taking, like whether they should be offensive or defensive or what have you. But over and above that, he is CPU controlled. Um, the game is a two player game, so two players can uh, fight through the uh, through the story together. Um, interestingly, it does support up to six players, but only in like this special sort of versus almost like a Coliseum mode, right? Where um, you, you select one of the many, 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 many characters that are available in game and you can sort of hack and slash at each other. Um, and that part's really fun. And what really differentiated this game when it released was the fact that it, you know, it had, first of all, really nice hand-drawn 2D colorful well-animated visuals um, and a great soundtrack, but also there were branching paths, which was not really typical for a beat-em-up uh, back then. Um, and it also had um, 
RPG element to it. So your fighters, at the end of each level, you would end up with so many points that you could distribute across various categories like strength or intelligence or whatever. And then you could build your character up over time, uh, sort of like you would level up a character in an RPG. So these were this is a bit of a fusion of a couple of uh, gameplay ideas, and that was fairly new to that genre at the time. So with all of that said, I just want to maybe do a quick roundtable and I'll start uh, maybe with you, Ben, to see what your experiences were with Guardian Heroes. You know, like, did you play it back in the day? Did you did you pick it up later? Did you play it solo? Was it with others? Like, you know, what did you think uh, of Guardian Heroes? Yeah, sure. So uh, Guardian Heroes, fantastic game. I played it back in the day. Um, now, to keep in mind, I was a kid at the time. And so when we were playing it, uh, this is just coming off as your standard beat-em-up, uh, similar to what you would think Streets of Rage of, or something like that. Uh, but the um, when I played this more recently, I got more of the RPG elements and the more strategy that you get into this and realized exactly what Treasure was doing. Uh, because... Treasure has this knack for taking a genre game and just twisting it up a little bit and making it a little bit unique. And they've done that with all of the Saturn games that we're going to be talking about. Mm -hmm. And so with this one, you have, you know, these special techniques that you can do. It's kind of like think of like Mortal Kombat special moves, things like that. Um, You have magic moves. And these are things that you don't typically find on your standard brawler. And at the RPG elements, uh, this was all fantastic stuff that really just added layers to the game and one of the other things that i remember about it was the amazing soundtrack like you're going through and you get these amazing audio that includes saxophone that sounds like it's on saturday night live and this is just but put together, it makes it a really fun, immersive game. It's, it's just a lot of fun to play. And the replayability to this is just immense. And so that's basically where... It's off the wall. Yeah, yeah that's where I'll land with this game. Uh, I like it. It's very highly recommended. Nice. Did you find it difficult to get used to? Because it's like, so, you know, another gimmick to this game is it's got those three planes, right? You're in the middle or you're in the background or you're in the foreground. And you can sort of jump back and forth at will. And I'll admit, when I first started playing the game, that actually was, that took some getting used to for me. And and I'm curious what you thought of that. Oh, it's not too bad. Like, when you first do it, it's like this thing where it's like, whoa, that's cool. And then you start jumping between the uh, the background and the foreground. And in about five minutes of doing back and forth, you're totally used, at least for me, I was totally used to it. And I can jump back and forth and it wasn't even an issue. Um, it very much was easy for me to get into. Nice, nice. Um, Dave, did you play this game when it came out or, or subsequently? And I'm just curious what you thought of it. Yes. So, um, well, it's one of my favorite games on the Saturn for sure. It's a showpiece. It's definitely one of those games that you could use to like shut folks up if they were saying like the Saturn wasn't that great or whatever. You know, it's one it's one of those games that I think is is very accessible. It's got the the main campaign, but then it's also got like a brawler mode. Uh, which is a lot of fun, and you can have what up to six players at the same time. Yep, isn't it? Yep, it's six, right? Yeah, which was amazing. I saw that on the back of the box, and I was just like, "Wow, you can have." You know, I, I, I've heard of like six players in hockey games or whatever, you know, or uh, you know, sports games, but for for six players in a, in like a brawler mode, that's amazing. Um, the artwork is fantastic. Um, you know, even though it's a two D game, which you know wasn't exactly 
in vogue back then. It was these huge hand-drawn sprites, which was kind of like nothing you'd seen before. It was very anime uh, inspired. Of course, you know, Treasure has a way of like doing these games with amazing large sprites that are all hand-drawn. That's one of the things that's a big draw to the game. One thing I noticed, though, about Treasure games in general is that they do this thing where every game... So there's a couple things that they do, like Ben was saying, that just are gonna we're gonna talk about with every single game we co- cover and that's that th- all of the names of their titles are always two words right and they're always like two kind of like random abstract words like radiant silver gun gunstar heroes silhouette mirage guardian heroes alien soldier you know they, so all of their games are like two words they all have some kind of gimmick that's like their thing that when they're sitting around the table in the conference room they're like well we have to find another gimmick for our next game you know like what's the gimmick going to be you know that's going to set this apart or make it special you know this is definitely the most accessible game i think guardian heroes in terms of that gimmick like you said there are three planes that you can move uh between and that mm-hmm. does take some getting used to but it's probably the easiest adjustment to make out of all of their games. You know, it's not that much of a brain bender. It's just, you know, it can lead. Sometimes there's definitely a more efficient way to complete each level. But um, once you get used to that, it, it, you're definitely able to take out the bad guys faster. But the the action on str- screen can often get really chaotic. And the machine can even experience slowdown when there's a bunch of characters on screen and stuff like that. So, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but, you know, they... I feel like the artwork and the graphics are really draw folks in. And that's the thing that kind of makes their games accessible. But I feel like a lot of their games are inaccessible in terms of like brutal difficulty, sometimes clunky gameplay, or even like brain bending memory (laughs) games where you have to like remember what the gimmick is and how to use it effectively in order to do really well at the game. But yeah, no, I, I, I do. I do love the RPG mechanic how at the end of every level you're able to like um, assign, you know, skill points, whatever, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. boost your, boost your skills in different areas. And you can kind of mold your player into who you want them to be. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so back in the day, I was just amazed at the fact that this game has like 45 playable characters. I think it is. That was just the most fun. That part was the, the most fun for me. I mean, the story is fun, but just playing that with friends is a lot of fun. Yeah, I did that. Uh, I think the most I ever got was four people playing it at the same time. And I thought it was yeah. just it was just chaos, right? Like it, it was, is. I guess, the 90s equivalent of, I guess, almost like a Smash Brothers sort of idea, sort of, because it was just, you know, pure chaos. I do remember being disappointed that you couldn't do more than two players in the campaign mode. I sort of hoped that right. you could at least get three or whatever. But, you know, it is what it is. I think that we definitely got our money's worth. And yeah, it was... It was a showpiece in the sense that this was a time where 2D was really kind of on the outs. Everybody wanted everything to be 3D and pre-rendered, and this was exactly not that, right? And yet it was still this fun game. I remember it was reviewed well. You know, people looked on it uh, favorably, etc. Like, it did take advantage of the Saturn hardware to a good extent. You did see some transparencies in the game and all right. that kind of stuff. Um, oh, speaking of, uh, you know, everybody wanted 3D and everybody wanted pre-rendered. This is one of, like, I would say my top five examples of the U.S. box art being terrible. I, I Maybe this oh, is just a me bad. thing. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I just... It is. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's nothing in like this game is beautifully animated. It's totally hand drawn. The art is amazing, and then you stick this, in my opinion, 
you know, entry level, you know, intern type drawing on the front because it's right. it looks 3D like oh yeah and it, it, it does does not represent anything in the game you know? no <laughs> it's just like what what is happening i mean i don't know like was that something that that would have caught your eye that you looked for maybe back then and i'll ask this to either of you guys like was it important to have a 3D type of image on the cover of a game like did that make a difference to you i don't know i mean no <laughs> <laughs> i i i mean it's just so ugly. Like it would have been better to just have a really nice hand-drawn, you know, graphic on the front. Like they just, they, they just misread their market. Honestly, I think. Yeah. I know for me, I, um, you know, the first thing you see is the cover of the game. And, uh, then you base off of that, look at the back and see if it's something you look interested in. And, uh, when I was younger, for sure, I would have looked at Guardian Heroes and thought, oh, man, that's that's not going to be good. Yeah, like I'm thinking of games like Legend of Oasis, of even the first Panzer Dragoon. There's some amazing art that was produced for these games. Um, like it could have had like this, you know, beautiful, you know, richly colored sort of boxes and, and yet it didn't. They stuck with what now has aged so terribly, right? And it looks just so ugly, but... Uh, but I think it was just, I mean, you know, you have to put yourself back into those mid-90s and everybody was clamoring for 3D and you had to say that your game had this or that rendered or whatever. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I remember in particular, and I won't get off topic too much, but there was this one paper ad that Sega put out at some point during that generation, that transition between Genesis and Saturn, where it was like this foldout and it was like this buffet. And so, you know, they showed this like long sort of buffet line and one section of it was the Saturn section and, you know, it had its launch games and there was a Genesis section, a Sega CD section and everything. And so they showcased a few games in this advertisement pamphlet and with little descriptions. And every single game, because I looked at this just the other day, every single game without fail mentioned 3D in its description, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, at least once. And and I'm talking about games that were clearly not 3D. So things like Vector Man on the Genesis or Calibri on the 32X, which is pure 2D. There's nothing rendered about it. There's nothing right. 3D about it. And yet they mentioned 3D in the description because I guess that's just what you kind of needed to do that maybe back then, right? Like it was just right. the time, I suppose. So. You can't, it, it's for folks who didn't live it. Um, I'm, I have to say you can't understate the importance of 3d and I've gone on like a broken record about this. Like back then, if I was standing in front of two cabinets and one was like metal slug two and the other one was like virtual fighter, the original virtual, I would have chosen virtual fighter as a kid, you know, it mm -hmm. just, it was such a, it was such a different we take it so for granted now it's just not even a thing we think about but back then to have a game in 3d was just mind-blowing it was just a it was a, a completely new game you know like uh pun very much intended it just kids were crazy about 3d back then and nowadays it's easy enough to just look at the games and see what are the good games you know like guardian heroes is a legitimately good game metal slug 2 is a fantastic game many folks now will choose to sit down and play that it's a fantastic game but back then really like there was just such a bias for 3d uh and and it's like if you had to decide where you were going to spend your money um, which a lot of kids did. They didn't have the, just like endless income to buy everything. 
you know, they were nine times out of 10 going to go with the 3D title and completely miss out on what could be, you know, potentially the better game or one of the best games on the Saturn. I know that's uh, something that happened to me as well. Dave is right. This whole 3D craze was something that very much picked up. And if you didn't live it, you just don't understand. Like, um, I used to play Outrun a lot at the arcade, a fun racing game. You know, anybody would say yes. But the game that blew me away was Virtua Racing. And it was because it was 3D and it just was so mind blowing at the time. It looked so different and unique. So yeah, yeah, absolutely correct. I mean, it was the same for me as well, obviously. But you know, I, I, I actually, to be honest, and again, not to get off topic too much, but I actually noticed that the 3D still wasn't really all that mature, even by the following generation. Like there yeah, were a lot of, you know, PS2 yeah. games, you know, even GameCube to an extent, Dreamcast in a lot of ways that just, you know, you know the ability to, to store massive textures just wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the scaling and the integrate, like it just, it wasn't quite mature yet. And mm-hmm. as, as much of a craze as it was, like that's probably why a lot of this stuff either didn't age well or it holds some sort of a uh, nostalgic charm for people, right? And in for, for a lot of the early 3D games, they do, like me personally, I do have that nostalgic feeling for them. But man, those covers, the pre-rendered covers for the games that weren't exactly 3D or whatever, yeah, that I do have a hard time with that. I mean, like back in the day, I had blinders on to an extent to, to 2D games, you know, like the, the original Gex, mm-hmm. you know? Like the cover, you'd see it everywhere. It was a highly promoted game. So you'd see it. But then when I would look at the back, I was like, okay, it's 2D. I'm not really interested. You know, then I, I yep. took notice of Gex. I took, I really took notice of the Gex series with Enter the Gecko, you know, and I played it on PlayStation and it was a fun enough collectathon. But the first game is actually the better game. You know, now that I've gone back, mm-hmm. you know, I've gone back over subsequent years, you know, and played it and realized and acknowledged that the first game is really that's really the game to play, you know, and no, it's not the best earth shattering uh, platformer out there, but it's a good competent 2d platformer. But back in the day, it's just like the fact that it was 2d, I was just like, not really going to pay it any attention. Um, Mm -hmm. It was like, I would only start to notice things if they were in 3d. And I, you know, like I say, it, it's hard to understand why anybody would do that. But all I can say is that kids back then, it's like all we had known forever was just 2d gameplay. And once games went 3D, it was just like, well, what's the point of playing anything in 2D when you can play it in 3D? <laughs> you know, uh, yes. as stupid as that sounds, it's not something you could take for granted back then. Now you totally can. And I think it's wonderful that games come out now both in 2D and 3D, and it completely doesn't matter. It's just like whatever serves the game, you know, and 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 that kids grow up nowadays not loving or hating one or the other, you know, that they just they accept that games exist with all different kinds of graphics and you know you can enjoy everything so to bring this back to guardian Guardian heroes (laughs) but no i mean it's a good discussion because these are all things that sort of influenced you know how the game was received how many people bought it at the time etc because it's it's one one of of the definitive game it it really is one of the definitive 2d titles on the saturn it's what shows Mm -hmm. you how great Saturn could be as a 2D console and what it was able to do. It's the pin, like you said in your, in your letter in the magazine, it's the pinnacle of 2D, you know, Mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. not really been topped, you know, maybe performance, you know, performance has gotten better with 2D games, but I would argue that a lot of them kind of almost dip 
too far into like the flash game looking thing, you know, where the, mm-hmm. the gra- th- this really was like the pinnacle of like hand drawn 2d gameplay. And what we've benefited over the years is maybe better performance where everything runs a little smoother. Like you're gonna, it's going to run smoother on the 360 Xbox 360, which is the of only course. other console it's come to. Yes. Sorry, that's I didn't true. need to yes. cut you off, Peter. <laughs> where were you going? With no, that? no, this was, I mean, you know, good discussion. And I was just going to add that, it's a wonderful game. It's an example of, you know, like you were saying, what the Saturn could do. It, it, you know, and with Treasure producing, again, in my opinion, mostly games for like more hardcore games. Like these are not casual games, these games that we're no. talking about today. Mm-mm. To really get the most out of them, you do have to invest some time. You've got to learn the moves and the game system and the, you know, the rules of the game that, that you're playing within. But right. it is also, you know, quite accessible. Like you could just, you know, invite a friend over sit down and have a session and you know neither of you having picked the game up uh before you could still have a good time it isn't that difficult or it doesn't have a learning curve i guess i should say that is so steep that you you know in a time crunch world you're not going to be able to get any enjoyment out of it and that is to me right now today and, and i guess in my sort of phase of life it's it's a plus for the game to be able to yeah. just pick it up and, and play it, you know, at any time. And it's nice that they give you modes so that you can enjoy the game differently. You know, you mm-hmm, can, you can mm-hmm. enjoy different sides of the game um, and you can approach it. You know, the, I mean, some folks might spend all of their time on the, you know, the brawl mode, you know, and that just might be guardian heroes to them, you know, cause that's their experience, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. I mean, treasure made games for hardcore gamers the appeal to your average Joe gamer is definitely going to be in like the artwork and the, and the vibe, you know, like the, there's a lot of craftsmanship that goes into these games. And so it's undeniable that they're a visual treat. And so I do feel like all of their games kind of pull you in from like an audio visual standpoint. But then once you really get into it, you realize that they quickly separate the men from the boys, so to speak, in terms of the fact that if you want to get good at the games, you have to, master the gimmick basically and you have to Mm -hmm. figure out what they want you to do and learn to play the game the way they want you to play it so this game has obviously branching paths multiple endings whatever have either of you guys finished the game like have you you know you know with intention i guess gone back to see all that there is to see or like was it more of an organic approach to the game like how did but how do you play this game uh ben i'll start with you All right, so I have actually beat the game, but this was a long time ago when I actually uh, finished it all the way through. Uh, Subsequent playthroughs, it's been more fun for me to actually have a multiplayer, and so I've had a two-player on the game Mm -hmm. most of the time when I've been playing it later uh, because I just find it more fun that way. And uh, so when I've got two players, um, it seems like we end up not finishing the game, but it's not that we weren't having fun. Mm -hmm. We just basically timed out, hey, we've got other things we got to do. So that's basically been what has happened when I've been playing this game lately. Mm. I don't really feel like I've beaten any of these games. (laughs) (laughs) I I, Well, Radiant Silver Gun, I don't really count because yes, I've beaten it, but cheating you know like I, I i really have had to use multiple continues to beat radiant silver gun so i don't really consider that beating the game but i finished it okay so like i finished radiant silver gun but neither guardian heroes or silhouette mirage have i beaten or gotten gotten to see the end and i realize that's kind of you know maybe my, my i just lost my 
my gamer card just got revoked. But the fact is like Ben, I've really focused more on like the multiplayer um, because I just think it's amazing that you've got like 45 different characters and um, they all have like different little things that they can do. Um, and I, I realize Randy's one of the main characters, but that's like one of my go-tos that or Jinjiru. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but there, I mean like there's so many others, you know, to, to choose from. And uh, yeah, so the main campaign, I, uh, I admit I never finished it, but I got about like two, I got about like three quarters of the way through, I would say. Do you think, did you make it to the graveyard? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic stage. I had to make sure you'd gotten yeah, at least absolutely. that far. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Got got quite a bit farther than that. And I did, you know, fill out my karma gauge quite a bit and everything like that. It's one of those games, honestly, that, I mean, if I look at my shelf, I have a ton of games uh, that I feel like I just need to retire so I can, like, sit down and go back through all of these and yes. play through them. And honestly, I just, that's one of the things where I just marvel at Peter's ability to, like, sit down and play through a game like Congo and get all the way to the end or, or Tomb Raider on Saturn for that matter. I'm just like, how do you punish yourself to do that? <laughs> Maybe punish is a hard word, but like, how do you discipline yourself to do that? Cause I just can't find the time. Like it was, it was easier for me to beat breath of the wild. Uh, as funny as that sounds, then it would be for me to beat Congo. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I mean, you know, I'm, I know I'm probably in the minority here, but that's sort of the way I kind of operate when playing games. And I just find it to be delightful because it's not, mm-hmm. you know, you're focused on the one thing you're in your one sort of world. You don't, you know, so, and you know, I've finished guardian heroes as well. Um, yeah. and you know, everyone's got favorite stages and whatever, but I, I cannot say that I've seen everything there is to see in the game. I haven't invested, mm-hmm. you know, that amount of time into it because of course with the branching paths, there are ultimately levels that are easier to get to and see and some that, you know, you really have to, um, uh, you know, pick certain very specific paths and, and they're mm-hmm. less likely to show up and there are multiple endings. There's, you know, different bosses and all that kind of stuff. So I know that, um, I haven't seen all that there is to see in this game, but yeah, it's definitely a game that if you sit down and play it and like it, you're going to have to make a choice. And that choice is simply, you know, am I going to keep enjoying it on a casual basis, which is fine, or do I really want to kind of dive into it, whether alone, you know, solo or with a with a buddy or a couple of friends or whatever, and really kind of sink your teeth into it? Because it's definitely a game that, while it appeals and is perfectly playable by your casual uh, gamer, there's mm-hmm. a lot to see and to do there to get the full, you know, experience. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I mean, so I've, I I've beaten a lot of games. I, 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 I'll, I've beaten a stall. You know, I've beaten, uh, <laughs> I've mm-hmm. beaten a lot of games. To be honest with you, but I suffer from what I like to call the three quarter syndrome. Where many yeah. of my games, if you look at the save file, I get like three quarters of the way through, and then I get distracted by something else. You know, and like with the mm-hmm. Saturn, I, um, I didn't beat Guardian Heroes back in the day, and then when I picked up a long box of it and I started playing it again. It was at the same time that I was just acquiring a bunch of Saturn games, you know, and like getting back into. So it's like something new would come in the mail, and I'd be like, "Oh, I want to play that too," you know. And so I have like ADD for, you know, actually like sitting down and making my way through these games completely, you know. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that since Guardian Heroes gives you that multiplayer mode, that's another reason to get distracted from like the main goal. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. 
So, you know, I, I want to wrap up with Guardian Heroes. Um, I want to ask both of you, and I'll start with you, Ben, just sort of, do you think this game holds up today? Is it worthwhile for folks to play today? And, you know, maybe just a highlight or two of your experience with the game. Like, what should people be um, expecting or what they should be, you know, potentially looking out for, you know, that kind of thing? Oh, oh, absolutely recommended. The um, This game is something that you definitely want to try. You definitely want to play it. And it's it's one of those that, you know, like I said, it's a brawler. Uh, so if, with the Streets of Rage style and then you got the RPG elements, it's the the game kind of morphs into what you want it to be. You can pick the, you know, like staff carrying character, Randy. You can get the uh, I forgot his name, uh, the one with the sword um, that you can pick him. You've got a couple others. So you've got the game can play in the way that you want to play it. Um, and it's something that. I think everybody that likes this type of game or even somebody who likes, say, an RPG element type game is going to get something out of because the amount of uh, quality and the amount of stuff you can do here is pretty immense. Uh, I've beaten the game, but I've definitely not taken every single path. So there's easily Mm -hmm. a lot of different ways you can go with this or multiple endings. Um, And I I think just the amount of stuff to do in it is the thing that the players that uh, we are trying to recommend this to should just try out and see what they like for themselves. So then I wonder, do you think that players like um, of more traditional beat-em-ups, like I'm talking about your Streets of Rage, your Fighting Force, whatever... You know, is Guardian? We we all know we've we've established that Guardian Heroes is a good game, but is it a good side-scrolling beat 'em up game? Like, would a purist do you think really dig this? I definitely think they would. I I think that it is, like you said, it's objectively a g- good game. Um, it does it. Some folks might be annoyed by the fact that you can only um you're basically glued down to three different planes. Mm-hmm. You know, unlike. Streets of Rage, where you can just kind of wander freely. Even the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles beat-em-ups, you know, allow you to kind of wander freely. Here, you really are kind of nailed down to the front, the the back, or like the mid-plane. And um, you kind of jump between those planes. But the cool thing about it is that you're also able to avoid attacks that way. Um, and you're also able to, you know, kind of choose who you want to engage with, you know, and you can kind of use it you can kind of jump away from each plane to kind of, uh, like I say, avoid attacks. Um, I think that it ends up being kind of a cool little gimmick and it's what sets the game apart that and the, um, you know, the karma system where you kind of level up your character, kind of like an RPG. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it kind of, it puts their spin on the beat up genre. And I think that folks will like it if they're, if they're open-minded and they, they want to try something new. I definitely think, that they'll like it. And I definitely think that most folks getting into it now will probably enjoy the Xbox 360 version because it does kind of get rid of the, the slowdown and presents the game as, as best as it can be. Um, you know, I, and that might be sacrilege to say, cause you know, I'm a Saturn fan and, but I, I the Saturn, the Saturn game does have, you know, a, a fair bit of slowdown, especially when there's a lot going on in the screen. Um, so, that might be a turnoff to somebody just coming into it. So, but then again, I think it's kind of crazy that this hasn't come out on steam or or anything or like PC or anything, because it's pretty much still exclusive to Saturn and Xbox 360 arcade. 
Yeah, and just to round out opinions of uh, Guardian Heroes, I mean, you know, it's obviously a great game that there's no, you know, denying that, but it's also, like, it's a treasure game at the end of the day, so you have to go in expecting it to to play like a treasure game it can get frantic there could be a lot going on on the screen you do if you want to see the whole game you do have to dedicate some time into it but it is a blast and it just you know this is peak 2d this is peak saturn it's just it's a great great experience Okay, so let's switch gears and talk about the second of our treasure trilogy, and that would be Silhouette Mirage. So this title released in September of 1997. It stayed in Japan only on the Saturn, but this was also a bit of a transition time in the industry, and at that time, Treasure, who had been producing uh, you know, games exclusively for Sega consoles, at that time they divested a little bit, and uh, they began to develop for PlayStation and Nintendo 64. Silhouette Mirage did ultimately end up on the PlayStation as well. But who cares, because we're here to talk about the Saturn game. So, uh, the story is that there's some sort of like a computer uh, disaster. Like, a, think of it as an AI disaster. And it, it sort of morphs the uh, you know population of the world into either silhouettes or mirages. And the heroine, the character that you play, uh, Shina, she has attributes of both. So she could be a silhouette or a mirage, depending on which way she faces. So faces left or right. So it's a 2D game, right? Um, and so, you know, her mission, you know, in the story of the game is to undo all the damage caused by this computer, you know, malfunction and to repair that computer. And to do that, she's got to go through, you know, multiple uh, levels and... Uh, you know, fight and defeat enemies that are either silhouettes or mirages. And so here's the gimmick we talked about, how Treasure always has a gimmick in their game. You have to either face left or right, and you have to obviously strategically place yourself in, uh, you know, in position on the screen to be able to to fight and to shoot either silhouettes or uh, mirages. So, um, you know, just to start off a little bit, out of the three games that we're talking about today, this is the one that I have the least experience with. I never owned or um, played through the PlayStation version, and I have uh, played through the Saturn version, but I haven't finished the game. I find it to be, I mean, it's a platformer for sure, like a run and gun type of platformer, but it does take getting used to the the silhouette and the mirage, I guess, gimmick to it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I want to, you know, and yeah. I'll turn to you, Dave, first, and then and then later to Ben. You know, d- is this something that was intuitive? Like, did you have to get used to this? What did you think of this gimmick? No, you're right. Um, so I didn't play this back in the day. I didn't really import Saturn games when the console was on the market. I kind of got into importing with the Dreamcast. But did very soon, I don't know, in the 2000s, start importing games and start getting interested in Japanese Saturn games. This is certainly one of the ones that caught my eye just because of the beautiful artwork and the fact that it was treasure. It ends up being a really experimental game, I feel. Um, there's, I kind of feel like there's too much going on. Because you mentioned that it was a run and gun. It's like 
it's multiple genres. You got like run and gun aspects. You got beat em up. You got platforming. You've got like RPG upgrades. Um, so it's just got a ton of stuff going on. Then you have the the polarity gimmick or the silhouette mirage, um, where you know. <laughs> so it's kind of like a beat em up, and you're going through and you're grabbing enemies, and you want to do damage to them, but you have to face one direction to change color to match your enemies or to. Uh, arguably you want to, you want to be the opposite color as your enemies in order to do mm-hmm. damage to them. If you're the same color as your enemies, you don't do damage to them, but you do lower their attack power, I, I guess, from what I understand. And then, um, so you got like these se- se- several genre mashup thing going on. Then you've got this polarity thing where, um, you kind of have to, a nat- natural beat em up, um, mechanics you know the the way that you would play a beat-em-up naturally you just can't do that here it's a little clunkier you have to be you you constantly say oh yeah i have to be on this side of them so if an enemy is across the screen from you you have to like run over and jump over them and then turn around the opposite way in order to effectively you know damage them um you do have like this dash move this like fast dash move where you can press down and forward and then you do like a speed dash which was which can is kind of like Sonic spin dash or something like that. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, but yeah, the the, the beat em up elements just don't feel as smooth as something like Gunstar Heroes, for example. You know, um, well, I I mean that's that's technically like a run and gun, but I mean the the beat em up elements just don't feel that smooth because of the whole silhouette and mirage thing. And I feel like this was kind of a test bed for Ikaruga, you know, which they would later go on to create that shooter where you kind of have the, you can change the polarity and and it's just much more concise and more focused. Like they didn't with this, I feel like they were still just throwing a ton of ideas at the wall and they're like, well, let's include this. Let's include this, you know? And so the game comes off as, uh, you know, visually stunning, but too much going on, in my opinion. So I wonder if this is a case, you know, like inevitably when you have a developer that um, is always trying to, you know, get new gimmicks or, or find new ways to to create a gameplay experience. I mean, some stuff works and some stuff doesn't work as well. And and Ben, I just want to see where you land on that that equation. Is this a fun game for you? Did you enjoy this? Like, what, where's where's your head at? Oh man, what a challenging game. So this game, when you get into it, you think, oh yeah, okay, I can get these mechanics down pretty quickly. Uh, But the game very, very quickly becomes very complicated really fast. And you have to start paying attention to uh, the colors and the sides. And it's like uh, Dave said, like Ikaruga, um, in the sense that it can be maddening how much attention you have to pay to the your character and the characters that are attacking you in order to be an effective fighter. And it's a beautiful game. It, it, to me, it looks like it gets inspiration from, uh, say, like the the short, cutesy art style of Mega Man. And, uh, you, you know, you face your different uh, sides based on your color and your tossing. Uh, the One of the important things that I remember was because uh, my first experience playing this was the PlayStation. And so it has this little tutorial at the beginning and it, it shows you all the different attacks. And you're like, OK, this attack. All right. You turn this around. OK, how many attacks are we in now? I think we're at 12 different executables that we can do at this point. And uh, that makes it really complicated. And you have to really think about what you're doing when you play the game. 
Um, I don't think that makes that less fun. It's a very, very unique game. I have never even played anything that's quite like this uh, as far as like a, uh, I would say, what, a platformer? All of this like polarity stuff that they did, they've done with shoot 'em ups and uh, Gunstar Heroes, things like that. But it, it's just a little unique on this game. And so it makes this one kind of a one of a kind. Now, I haven't finished this one. I've, I've gotten through uh, a good portion of it, but... I just get to a point where I just get a little frustrated, can't get a little further. I know that I could if I put some time into it and focus, uh, but this is one of those games that I just haven't gotten back to yet just because there's uh, so much other stuff on my game to-do list, but it, it's a fun game and they definitely tried something. I don't think they failed, but they definitely did something really unique and uh, definitely a little difficult too. You know, I, I would... I would say that the three of us on the cast today are more on the hardcore side of gaming than casual, for sure, you know? And yet, and, and I'll echo the two of you, I find this game to be a little bit much. So, you know, like games always border, you know, a fun ratio with, you know, essentially work. Like you need to put work in, you need to acquire some skills or whatever to, to get through a video game. And I almost feel like with this one, Treasure went a little bit too far into the work sort of part of the equation. And it it can at times feel a bit tedious where it's like, okay, this is way too much. I'm not having fun anymore. And I, I shouldn't say that this is not a fun game because it is unique and you can definitely have a good time with it. And yes, I think it was a nice little test bed for later polarity games like Ikaruga right or um so so you know it's not it's not a bad game but I think I think Treasure like I said slightly missed the mark here and went a little bit too far into you know this being uh work as opposed to fun I'm not sure that after a hard day of work or whatever I would want to sit down and play Silhouette Mirage you know what I mean (laughs) Like, I would want to wake up and mm-hmm. play Silhouette Mirage and then take a break and relax for the rest of the day is probably more how I would land with this game. So, you know. I mean, that's Treasure Games, though. I mean, Treasure Games are kind of, they tend to be brutal, you know? Like, they, they're demanding games. They're not for the faint of heart. Um, and they always try to, like, force this brain exercise on the player. You know, like, this is what you're going to have to... You're going to have to exercise your brain and get used to this oh, yeah. to the point where you can do it second nature. And it's just... I think it's high concept. Again, like, there's there's two sides to every coin kind of thing, you know? And I so I do like the idea of flipping or switching sides to, to control that polarity mechanic. So it, the concept is great, right? But in in reality... In practice, it would have just been better if, for example, you use the A button to attack red enemies and the B button to attack blue enemies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you like mm-hmm. if you, you had like two different buttons that would when you use that button to attack, it changes your color and that but that would have been more simple. And that's just not yep. treasure. They're just like, no, we want to make it really obtuse. We want to make it, you know, incredibly challenging. So it's like a brain exercise. I feel like, and all of their games are like that to a degree, but some you can get around more better than others, you know? And, and I feel like they got better, you know, like the, again, they're going to, we're going to talk about this again with radiant silver gun. Cause they did it again mm-hmm. with that, but, they, but every time they release a game, they got a little bit better and they got a little bit more focused, 
I think that with something like Ikaruga, it's simple enough. It, it really, they boiled it down to the essence of, okay, we want to do this polarity thing, but we need to make it manageable for folks. And I feel like that came off better. You know, it, it just, I, I really enjoy that game and I can sink hours into playing it as hard as it can be, you know, because it's, it's easy enough to come to grips with, and then it's just a matter of mastering it. But you, with, with some of these earlier games, like you said, I think they just reached a little too far. Mm-hmm. And with this game, definitely. It's, it's such a genre mashup. I don't think people realize how m- many different genre elements they're trying to cram into a single game. And in this case, I don't really think that all the flavors match or, or, or suit one another. So, you know, Guardian Heroes, as complex as it could get, was still accessible to the casual player, yes. right? And I feel that that's not necessarily yeah, yes. the case with Silhouette Mirage. Is that, would you agree with that, Dave? Uh, yeah, yeah, because everything feels just a little off. If everything feels a little clunky, the level design, you know, like the actual verticality, the maps and stuff like that are not as flowing and, and well laid out as like a Sonic game. Um, the the, the beat up it just, you you constantly get caught up on the whole Silhouette Mirage mm-hmm, mechanic, mm-hmm. you know, that... You can't really get into a flow um, beating up the enemies and, and taking them out. You, you constantly are tripping up on that fact that you need to be on the other side of them. You know, So there's just something about the game that feels a bit clunky and not fully realized. And that's where you know, it's like tripping on your shoelace. You know, it just doesn't, you never really get into like a flow mm-hmm. um, where you can totally do that with a Mario, you know, Super Mario Brothers or Sonic or Streets of Rage, you can get into a flood. You, a lot of these different games, just you can reach this Zen mode. You mm-hmm, know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As a as a gamer, where you just everything clicks and it just feels right. This game, it's constant uh, brain discipline. It's like it's constant. You know. I don't know, Ben, help me find the words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it's it, it you jump from one section to the next, you've get an onslaught of the mirage and the silhouettes and you just have to keep back and forth. It's just a brain drain. It's really what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a tiring but, game to uh, play. I'll say this though, when the Saturn game released, it it really got some solid review scores. So, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm also reminded of when Tomb Raider 2 came out. So bear with me. This is going somewhere. (laughs) Um, There was so (laughs) much hype built up for Tomb Raider 2. It was going to be like the next coming of, you know, video game Jesus or whatever. So, um, and then when it released, you know, of course it got glowing reviews. Everybody said, oh, it's such a great game and whatever. And in retrospect, I don't actually think it's that strong of a title as a follow-up to the first Tomb Raider, right? So I wonder how much of this was, oh, this is another game from Treasure. Well, these don't come along very often. And yep, they're trying new things. Yeah, this is good. So we got yeah, great review. You know what I mean? Because when the subsequent PlayStation version came out, the reviews were actually a little bit on the lower side compared to what you would expect. So... You know, I wonder how much of the the positive reviews of the time were just folks getting caught up in the fact that it was another treasure game. Yes, it featured new sort of gimmicks and mechanics, but that maybe it didn't gel quite as well as it could or should have. I mean, I, I don't know. It did not come out in the West on the Saturn, so, you know, there, there's only the import version to 
um, to deal with. But I, I just, you know, it's like taking the best ingredients in the world, but just not really baking your 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 meal, you know, quite yeah. enough. There's something off here. You know, but that said, I I don't want you know because we're all coming off relatively negative here, but there's definitely some some positives to this game. Um, you know, this oh, yeah. is not a complete dumpster fire by any means. So you know, like I thought visually, again, very very stunning, and you know, kudos to to mm-hmm. um, to Treasure for for trying something new. I mean, yes, potentially if they had maybe limited the scope of the game a little bit more, made it more focused, that would have. Yep helped it along but mm-hmm. i mean it it's a looker that's for sure and if you really want to challenge and something yeah. that challenges the way you think about video games and you know conventions this is a great great title to pop in because it will make you think and relearn you know certain patterns that you may have gotten used to uh, in terms of gameplay so you know please folks as you're listening to us this is not you know this isn't a dumpster fire by any means yeah we're just trying to be realistic. I mean, it's hard to review something that goes in so many mm-hmm. different directions because it's kind of like, how do I, how do I, you know, how do I rank it based on its merits as a beat up or based on its merits as a running gun? You know, it's like, it's really hard uh, to pin it down. Uh, obviously, it's required reading or required playing for a treasure game fan. And I mean, I think for most Saturn fans, it's going to be required just because it's a, well-performing 2d uh game has really good graphics cute little characters with their wings on their hat you know or with the wing on the hat you know um it's got some uh it's got some really good music that's just par for the course for treasure you know they were always really about the audio visual and then yes it tries to do too much it's a bit too experimental and ambitious um so I think that a lot of folks are going to end up agreeing with us. I think the average gamer will agree with us. Um, but if you are no stranger to treasure, then you pretty much already know what That's you're true. getting into with any of their games, you know? So just come at it like that, you know, just realize that this is going to be one of those more demanding treasure games. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really going to not just test you as a gamer, but also it's going to kind of uh, put your brain constantly to work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know so don't 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 play this if you're wanting like a chill vibe <laughs> don't play this if you want to relax and don't play it while you're you know? tired because it's just gonna you know really yeah. piss you off <laughs> it's yeah you know, exactly it's, oh yeah it's def definitely not for the casual player this is this is more advanced gaming right here uh, but if you oh, like sure. yeah but if you like the cotton games or if you like ikaruga uh if you like gunstar heroes and you just want something that's difficult along those kind of lines this is great to visit it's a great game uh but it's not something that i would jump on you know as an early stage saturn gamer uh ben what would you say is like uh the main strength of this game like what you know what you know stands out as something really well done with this with this title uh, the polarity fighting is actually really well done. Now, you, um, I know Dave mentioned that he wishes that it was like A button was blue, B button was red, that sort of thing. But when you really have to combine in all of the moves that actually get you to the opposite side of the characters, uh, you right. can see where it actually 
plays really well as far as like doing polarity that whoever mm. designed this and programmed this did a really good uh, thought process and really planned it out there's a little bit too much there in my opinion like we've discussed but they really did what they could with what they had and i think they did it well as far as the uh the the polarity fighting i think it's charming at first i mean i think that when you fire it up and you start playing it's like, oh, this is cool. Oh, how clever, you know? And it's charming when there's only a few enemies on the screen and stuff like that. Or when, and then as you get on into into the more advanced levels where they really start throwing stuff at you, then it's you know that then it becomes like, oh god, you know, like it's something that you end up tripping on a lot more than you should, you know. And the boss battles are really fun though. That I can say. But that's classic treasure, isn't it? Like classic yeah, treasure for yeah. sure. So, yeah. okay, we, I mean, we're sort of, you know, heading towards recommendations here. And what I'm hearing is, you know, good game has some shortcomings, not for the casual gamer. Is that, you know, is that fair to say? Yeah, I feel like everybody should play it, but I don't think it's going to be every, anyone's favorite. Mm -hmm. Like out of these three, it, it's it's my least favorite. And yet I, I, I love several things about it. I appreciate it for what it is. And I think that anybody should play it but again i i don't think that it i i mean i doubt that it's going to be on any the top of anyone's list you know ben i absolutely agree with dave everything he said is exactly what i would say as well that that's spot word for word so 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 great game but maybe not the first game for uh everyone's uh to-do list so okay that's a fair way to yeah, like if you if you love treasure games and you've already punished yourself enough with previous ones, you're <laughs> like now I now I need to hurt plenty, you know, like mm -hmm. <laughs> then then you graduate to something like this, you know, and see how, see how you do. I mean, some folks might surprise me and they might end up commenting that this is like their favorite treasure game. I don't know. I'm sure it's somebody's favorite treasure game, but it's uh not mine. But it's a good game. It's a, it's an interesting game and I think that it's relatively good Okay, so let's now hit the last of our treasure trilogy, and of course I'm talking about Radiant Silver Gun. After completing uh, Silhouette Mirage, Treasure had made it known that that would have been their last Saturn game, that they were going to focus more on uh, PlayStation and Nintendo 64. And although, you know, personally that pains me to, to read something like that, I can understand it from a financial perspective. But they did go on to produce a, an arcade game, and the arcade board that they chose was uh, the STV Titan board, which is essentially a Saturn, uh, you know, kitted out with uh, a little bit more RAM, and it uses cartridges rather than the CD-ROM drive, but, but it is essentially a Saturn. And so that made producing a Saturn version a no-brainer and that's exactly what they did and so in July of 1998 uh, the uh, the Japanese version of Radiant Sil Silver Gun hit the Sega Saturn and 
so a couple of things. First of all, this game for the longest time, like I'm talking for a good solid decade, was really seen as one of the holy grails of Saturn game collecting. Like it was always listed, you know, maybe not amongst the rarest of games, but it was definitely pricey. And it was almost like a like a status symbol to own Radiant Silver Gun. That certainly faded away um, over the past, I would say, five, six years. But there was a time where Radiant Silver Gun was where it's at, you know. Um, so that's number one. And number two is, again, just like with the rest of the treasure games, you know, in this case, you could categorize it as a shmup, but it relies on a whole bunch of, you know, conventions and gimmicks that you don't see in traditional shmups. And it does become this sort of blended uh, genre type of game. And while some people love it and think it's, it's, you know, really good, there are some that don't like it at all. So it'll be interesting as we talk through this game, um, to see where folks land, uh, just a little bit, uh, about the story of the game. Um, so, so there's a mysterious artifact that was excavated, which turned out to be sentient. And, uh, you know, it, in a flash, it wipes out all life on Earth. But there is a crew uh, in an orbiting spaceship called the Tetra that survived the blast. And so they end up engaging this this uh, ancient intelligence. And, you know, there's some time travel and whatever. But at the core of it, it is a shmup. It's more of a bullet hell type shmup. Um, and unlike most shmups, you start out with all of the weapons you're going to have, you know, right from the get-go. So there are seven different weapons. There are uh, that could be activated. Um, and, you know, in lieu of maybe picking up upgrades or additional weapons, what you can do is you build experience on your weapon systems. So, you know, if you finish the game or if you die, you can actually save it. And when you start over the next time, your experience carries over. So so that's the gimmick there. So I'm going to start with you, Ben, because I know that you are no stranger to this game. I'm, If I remember correctly to you either have or currently do own a Radiant Silver Gun cabinet, like the arcade cab. Um, you know, maybe walk me through a little bit what the game is to you and how you play it and, you know, sort of how you got into Radiant Silver Gun, etc. Yeah, sure. Okay, so first off, you're right. I do have a Radiant Silver Gun cabinet. It is a, um, a blast to play. This is the way that I play Radiant Silver Gun when I'm playing it. Uh, the differences for the cabinet, uh, there's some, a few here and there, like, um, for, there's an American version of Radiant Silvergun, and, um, for the Titan board, and there's a Japanese version. The American version only uses two buttons, so you have far less weapons. And then for the Japanese version, you use all three, which, uh, all three buttons, which gives you all the weapons at your disposal. So you always definitely want to be playing the Japanese version of the Titan arcade version of the game. Uh, that being said, there are no cutscenes, FMVs, things like that on the arcade, uh, but it does run at 60 frames per second. Sounds beautiful, looks beautiful. It's an amazing game. Um, but then getting into the gameplay, this is one of my absolute favorite shoot 'em ups. It, uh, it starts you off, like you said, with all the weapons. And so you're able to kind of figure out the style and uh, format of how you want to play and plan your attacks. Uh, you don't have to do it a certain way. You can do it any number of ways, uh, depending on how you like to play. And uh, so there, and there's so many strategies in here. There's uh, so you've get these little uh, pink bullets that fly around that you can collect with your sword. Uh, if you collect enough with your sword, your next sword attack is going to be a massive attack that also renders you invulnerable for a little bit of time. 
uh, the um, when you're going onto bosses, you want to break off their uh, limbs before attacking their main system. That gives you a little bit easier time navigating because now they're not attacking you with some of those other weapon systems. The um, the stages are actually a little slower by intentions as far as how you're moving through them. Uh, the developers said that they did this uh, because they wanted uh, you to be able to navigate a little easier through them, which does actually translate to that. And it gets really challenging towards the end, towards the middle. Hell, it's even challenging in the first stage. It's <laughs> it's one of those that you're going to be playing for a while just to even get through it. Hell, even with, you know, infinite credits versus even trying to do it, you know, accurately with only a certain number of uh, replays and credits and all that good stuff. It's a man. It's a delightful game. Uh, so much fun to play. Do you play it on the Saturn as well or do you prefer to play it uh, on the arcade cab? So I have it on the Saturn, but I have yet to fire it up on the Saturn. Get out. And I think it's because I, right, right, right. Wow. I know I'm insane. <laughs> I'm crazy. And, but it's, I have the arcade cab sitting right there, you know? Fair, so, fair. I mean, what would you do? Would you, yeah, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> so, oh my God, I, I absolutely love playing this game. And of course, when I got the cabinet just sitting right there, just staring right at it, it's, it's so much fun to play. I I picked does that. the arcade does the arcade cab have all the cinematics and stuff? Uh, no cinematics. But does it have like the little faces? Does the arcade version have like the little faces that introduce the level? Like when you're I'm trying about to, to yeah I'm trying to remember now because I've been because those I, are just sprites right right and then like there's like a little bit of voice over I'm not sure if it does or if they could fit that on the I, cart see I don't think they I'm trying to remember now just because I hadn't played this in a little while it's been it's been a bit so um and that's my own fault you know oh my god adulting is so crazy with time constraints uh -huh. um. I don't think they have the faces on there because I've watched videos where they show the faces. So I know what you're talking about. So I'm trying to remember if what I'm remembering is from the video that I watched or if it's from my gameplay that I've been playing, because I know when I get into the gameplay, I'm just I'm intensely on the ships. And, mm -hmm. you know, you got the um, all the verbiage that's written on the screen in front of you. But I find it interesting that there is a difference be like that big of a difference, a whole button between the Japanese and the American version. It's almost like. Like it's almost like it was tried to be simplified for the American audience, but did it really simplify the game or did it make it more complicated by removing that button? You know what I mean? Like that's just it's such an odd regional difference. It's very strange, and I don't really know why they did it. Like, like you say, did they try to simplify the game? Because uh, we're no stranger to the fact that Japanese games sometimes have a, a much more difficult uh, level than the American version. And uh, so maybe they were simplifying it or maybe they were trying to get it onto uh, Titan games that only had two buttons. And so they were like, well, we just got to take a button away. So that I am not too sure about. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to have to ask some of my contacts and see if anybody knows that actual answer. Yeah, because it's such an interesting change. Um, OK, Dave, what's been your experience with uh, Radiant Silvergun? Well, so I love the game. I love the game, but uh I, I agree with you that, you know, some folks absolutely hate it. And I think the folks that hate it are probably like the diehard shmup fans. You know, we have to start by acknowledging the fact that Treasure is not an arcade company. Like they're not an arcade game maker. They really, their focus was on home console games, you know, and Sega approached them to create for them an arcade game for this new cabinet they put out, the STV. 
Sega Titan video. And, you know, Treasure is thinking, okay, so what, what should we make for this? You know, if we're going to make an arcade game. Oh, well, shmups are very popular at the time. Of course, you had you had shmups like the Toaplan and the Cave shmups. And those were really gaining in popularity in Japan. So Treasure's like, well, we'll make a shmup. This is their first shmup, okay? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you love this game and you appreciate it for what it is, kudos to them for for making such a unique and interesting game right out the gate. This is their first ever shmup that they made. And not being an arcade game maker and not even being a shmup game maker, <laughs> they did. They were able to look at shmups a little differently than what most companies were doing, you know, and then what most people have become accustomed to, you know, with other shmups, you know. So that has to be said right out the gate. It's very it's very different. You know, they take a completely different approach. One, one of the things I would say, and Ben was right, this game is kind of brutally difficult. I personally have only ever gotten to the end by using several continues. But what I have noticed is that there is a bit of an RPG element in there, kind of hidden away that in so much as, as you use the separate weapons, the, the different weapons that you have, the more you use them, the more powered up they become, the more powerful and effective they become. And instead of punishing you for becoming more powerful, the way that a lot of shmups do, you know, the more powered up you you become, the more it just throws an onslaught of bullets and an onslaught of stuff at you, uh, which is how a lot of shmups work. You know, they become increasingly more difficult the more powered up you become. With this game, it actually becomes easier and more manageable the more powerful you become. And so... You know, because you have all of these weapons available at once, some folks might find that they end up gravitating towards one weapon. And the more they use that weapon, that weapon is going to become incredibly powerful. And yet all the other weapons are going to kind of still be like <laughs> level one. Right. You know, and you can't really succeed at the game in later levels if you don't exercise and put to use all of your weapons, you know, so you really need to learn which weapons to use in different scenarios and you need to put them all to good use so that they power up over the course of the game and you become more well-rounded and more powerful overall and that way you will find the later levels more manageable because they don't punish you for becoming more powerful they don't the game doesn't adjust its difficulty and throw more stuff at you it just becomes more manageable and more playable because treasure was more of a home console game maker and so that's how they designed the game. And that's how it's quite different from a typical shmup. What do you think, Ben? Uh, so to add on top of what you were saying is, uh, so this is Treasure. So Treasure does their color coding thing that they love to do. And yes. this game completely encompasses that as well. So on top of playing the game and shoot them up and all that, you also want to try to shoot uh, the uh, enemies that are color coded, you know, shoot the same color enemies at the same time. And it'll level up your weapons. And that level up stays no matter with you, whether you get shot down, you die, you whatever. That power up is still existent. So that makes it to mm -hmm. where uh, you are able to have a little bit of an easier time either as you go or next time you play the game. And I think right. that's fantastic. Yeah. And the three colors are what? Red, yellow, and blue, I think. Uh, like yeah. Red, yeah. That's yeah right. Red, yellow, and blue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it's an interesting 
sort of mechanic because you can take this game as a traditional shmup, I suppose, right, and just kind of blast your way through it, or you can become like you were, you guys were saying, just a lot more strategic, you know, and maybe knocking out only the red enemies, and you build up chains, right? So the more successive enemies of only a single color that you defeat, the higher your chain bonus uh, reaches. And, you know, you will quickly notice that enemies are arranged in certain patterns and it sort of, it's, it subtly sort of nudges you towards, you know, taking them out that way. But then, you know, you, you realize that, yes, okay, part of a challenge when you're playing a bullet hell shmup obviously is to survive and, you know, avoid the bullets and what have you. But with this game, you get this additional challenge of how do you get through a stage while only taking out, you know, one color out of the three of enemies and sort of dodging and surviving the other two, which is... You know, and, and that's just a fascinating layer of depth to me. And so you look at, you know, a game like Radiant Silver Gun, which has got all of these different mechanics. You've got, you know, your traditional shmup and layered on top of that, you've got some RPG weapon elements. Then you've got this like chain combo system going and whatever. And you compare that with a game like, say, um, Silhouette Mirage, which also had a hodgepodge of ideas. And arguably Radiant Silver Gun pulls it off much, much better. Like it just seems to gel better. I don't know, do you guys get that sentiment too, that it's a lot more of an approachable game, even though it's a bullet hell shmup? Yeah, I mean, it's doing a lot, like you say, but I do think that it appeals to a, a, a wider audience. I definitely think, though, that this game appeals more to general gaming audiences rather than, uh, you know, shmup lovers, because I think that folks who, like, really love Battle Garaga, which is really just more about recognizing the patterns and knowing your hitbox and it's a, it's a more traditional shmup you know the people who really love that like don't accept that they're just like this is not a shmup this is not what a shmup should be you know because it's not you know they didn't know what they were doing <laughs> they just kind of made the game that they wanted to in the genre you know of shmup you know and it's just uh but yeah i agree with you peter i, I feel like it's it's more accessible than uh, Silhouette Mirage, for sure. Despite the fact that it's doing a lot. Uh, see, I am a shmup lover. I love shmups. I love all the, the easy wins from Tiger Heli on the Nintendo to uh, this one, which I think is one of the hardest ones. Uh, Ekaruga is uh, another difficult one, for sure. But uh, shoot 'em ups are fantastic. And as a shoot 'em up lover, I think this one's an amazing game. It is so unique and so different. And that may be why some of those shoot 'em up uh, lovers don't like it, like Dave was mentioning. But it's it's the uniqueness to it is just enough uh, to be approachable by your casual mm. gamer, uh, your hardcore gamer, uh, your strategy right. gamer. Uh, you, you've got mm -hmm. an angle there for everybody, and I think it's amazing that, that uh, Treasure mm -hmm. pulled this off as their first shoot 'em up game. That good mm -hmm. lord, that's that's impressive. And I mean, they give you a ton of control in the settings, you know, to kind of tune the game to, uh, to, to make it approachable and to make it so that you can get through it and experience it. Because there is a story, of course, and they want you to be able to experience that despite the difficulty. So if you go into the options, there are a lot of different settings that you can tweak. And you know, this game, I mean, I remember my first experience when I played this game way, way back in the day was what an amazing amount of mastery treasure um had over saturn hardware i mean the stuff visually that they have the vdp chips doing here is is quite remarkable i mean the 
The backgrounds are, as far as I can tell, all high resolution. You know, they do a lot of scrolling and warping and whatever. And so even though it is a 2D uh, shmup, it, you know, the, the background like changes and you get these dramatic flybys and angles and whatever. And it just, it looks great. Like, you know, if ever there was a case yeah. in 1998 for the Saturn to still sort of you know, go toe-to-toe with the other two uh, consoles that were left in that generation. I mean, this was a showpiece game. It looked great. The one thing that's really different about this game and sets it apart from the two previous games we've talked about is that um, instead of being completely 2D, um, this really does marry Mm -hmm. like the 2D and the 3D. You've got 2D artwork. You've got pre-rendered assets, you know, like a lot of the thing obstacles that you have to fly around. Uh, are like pre-rendered 3D and then you've got actual 3D bosses, you know, that are polygonal. Um, so you've just got three different kinds of graphics on screen and they all work together really well. In addition to that, you've also got like the player avatars that come on the, the, the comms and talk to you at the beginning of every level, at least in the Saturn version. And then you've got cinematics uh, that kind of split up the the game. So with all of that, I'd say yeah, there's a lot going on graphically, and yet it all works. And, and it re- that's really like what the Saturn was all about, being able to do both 2D and 3D very well and, and look beautiful doing it. So agreed. This game also has a pretty mad soundtrack, doesn't it? Like that hit. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They got hit. Sakimoto, Sakimoto yes. Like the king, the king, the god. I mean, it doesn't get any and better than it's that. almost like they you know, fed him some drugs and then threw him into like a, an orchestra. And they were like, here's some violins and here's some whatever. And he just goes nuts with that stuff. Right. Like it just like, and it's, you know, and again, you know, maybe not a traditional soundtrack for such a game, but I just find it to be wild. Like it really kind of gets you pumping. I I don't know. What do you guys think? Oh, absolutely. He uses the orchestra. So it's all, a lot of his stuff is like orchestral but he's always able to get your blood pumping and just get you excited for like the adventure. You know, he did the same thing with final fantasy 12, you know, one of the, uh, many of those tracks are just killer, but like there's this one called fawn coast where you're, you it's just like ramps up and it's just like this huge, epic, grandiose, you know, orchestral score. And I know you love orchestral stuff. Peter, yeah, so sure do <laughs> like this. It's just but this. Yeah. This is literally at the top of my list for game soundtracks. It's just, so phenomenal what do you think ben oh dude oh you guys are both right i i'm me playing this on my titan cab this thing is a just a gem to listen to while you're playing it really gets you pumped up and i love every bit of it there's actually three different soundtracks that folks can check out out there at least you know outside of just playing one version of the game you can if you go online you can check out there's an stv version that uses like the stv chip then there's the Saturn version, which is a little bit rearranged and uses the Saturn chip. And then there's the orchestral version, which is like the arranged version using actual using an actual orchestra. So there's just several different ways to enjoy the soundtrack. But I think that it's phenomenal no matter what. So here's a fun fact. Do you guys remember what stage this game starts on? Oh, doesn't it start like on fourth? Was it three? It's certainly not one. Uh, Nope. Yeah, it's it not starts, one. It's like a. Yeah, it starts on three. Uh, when you fire up the game, and you play it. Yeah, you get a uh, the little message on the bottom, and it says uh, the stage three basically. And so right. 
with this game going through time, uh, your flashback stages are something that go back to stage one and stage two. So you get kind of a little bit of a history of what's going on. It's kind of neat how they did that. I really like that. Yes, which would be completely lost on a lot of folks back in the day, like playing the Japanese version. Like they might notice that and be like confused about what's going on, you know, but because of the language barrier until being able to play like the translated version, you know, it was not something that back in the day I understood like what what's going on here, mm-hmm. you know? And then of course, after playing the 360 version, I was like, oh, okay, it's like time travel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> You yeah. know, this game, I, the one thing I remember is this game actually got some pretty solid coverage in the uh, official Sega Saturn magazine uh, over in uh, Britain. Yes. You know, of course, at that time, the Saturn international market was sort of, you know, collapsing and whatever. So there was less and less for those guys to cover. And so they dove more and more into import games. And there were some games that they really gave a lot of attention to. I'm talking about games like Grandia, etc. But Radiant Silver Gun was definitely one that they praised to no end. And, you know, obviously for good reason. It's a great, great shmup. It's a great video game. And, you know, much more like Guardian Heroes than than perhaps uh, Silhouette Mirage, it is definitely more accessible. So, you, you know, you can go in for the straight shmup experience. You can go in for trying to see if you can get by using only one or two weapons or, or you know, working on increasing... Uh, the statistics of those particular weapons, or you can go in for the, you know, the the insane soundtrack or, you know, or the, the combos and the chains with the colors. So there's, there's so many different ways to attack this game. And, you know, like you were mentioning earlier, Dave, there are enough options in the game on the Saturn disc anyways, where uh, you can get through the game using as many continues as you want or whatever. So if you're more of a casual gamer, this isn't going to frighten you away perhaps to the degree that uh silhouette mirage was prone to do so so it, it all you know right. yes it's their first shmup but it almost feels like they tried to learn from what may have not gone quite as right with um silhouette mirage and and i think they not like i mean like you were saying ben they knocked it out of the park like it's difficult to find flaws with this game i mean there's even a secret uh, mode where you know you're looking for little dog icons that are hidden throughout the levels and only one of your seven <laughs> weapons yeah. will find it right like it's just wild yep. and crazy yeah. but you know just when you think you've seen enough uh, you've seen everything there is to see in uh, radiant silver gun here's this dog mode right where you're looking for these secret dogs so it's crazy the way treasure games are it's got gimmicks the way treasure games have but it's it it actually comes together really, really nicely. So, yeah, I mean, you know, just a great overall package. And, I mean, you know, it allows you to put the training wheels on so that you can experience the the story, which I don't want to spoil it for folks who haven't played it. It's actually kind of interesting. Uh, I'll just put it that way. But, uh, you know, so you can experience the story. You can kind of, you know, work at the mechanic and getting better at it uh, and still experience some success. And then, you know, just ramp up the difficulty for yourself, you know, as you go along until, you know, I wonder, I don't know, has anybody here one CC'd this game? I'm working on it. I have not yet. I I will get there. I know I will. You'll get there. That would be a feat right there. I mean, just for anybody to do that, you know, this is uh, because, again, it's it's one thing to one CC a typical shmup. But to one CC this game, I mean, you have to be like your brain has to be firing, you know, uh, you just you have, have to, to be dialed in. Like, I, I don't know. You got to be dialed in because like I, even Pat, 
you know, went on record saying that, you know, he loves this game, but as a shmup, it's just like so demanding of your brain to, to, to remember all of the different, you know, weapons that you need to use at the right time and all the combinations. It's, it's a bit of a puzzle, you know, and, uh, to crack that, you just, you really got to be on top of your game. But at least, like I say, you have training wheels and you can kind of, you know, fail as many times as you want and keep keep up at it, uh, you know, to get better at it until you can get to that point. And yet, just like any other treasure game, it isn't absolutely everybody's cup of tea. I, you know, Chaz, no. our own Chaz, no. was not a fan, <laughs> not a fan of this game. He was a he's a he's on he goes on record as a huge fan of uh battle garaga you know yes. and he's like that's yes. his cup of tea you know just the bullet hell schmuck well that's not even really a bullet hell but there, the thing i don't like about garaga is that the bullets literally are hard to see on screen uh, mm-hmm. all the time i just you know my, i get cross-eyed with all of that and um but no yeah that's that's his cup of tea so this game is just definitely not that it's just so different i i really love and appreciate the fact that ben likes this game as a as a huge shmup fan you know that you can Mm -hmm. you can appreciate this for what it is and and love it so much while at the same time you know loving a bunch of traditional shmups that just shows how eclectic you are ben (laughs) (laughs) well thank you fun fact if folks are looking for another game that's like this like maybe you've played radiant silver gun and you love radiant silver gun there is an indie shmup by a finnish studio um for windows and it's called zero ranger and i feel like it takes uh, a lot of inspiration uh, from from Radiant Silver Gun, so that's one to check out if if folks are looking for like more of the same or more of a similar flavor. Nice. Okay, so as we get to the end of our cast, I just want to do a really quick roundtable, and just like we did with the big three, I want to see if we can rank these games in order of personal preference. So again, we've got Guardian Heroes, Silhouette Mirage, and Radiant Silver Gun. I'll start with mm. you, Ben, and I'm pretty sure I know what your number one is going to be, so... <laughs> <laughs> Radiant Silver Gun! Radiant Silver... It's the... Oh my god, it's so good. Look, I bought an arcade machine cabinet just because I loved it so much. This thing Fair. is an amazing game. I love this game. So much fun to play. The replayability is off the charts. Uh, background music is awesome. This is the game. This is a fun game. Um, and then for my second win, I would go with Guardian Heroes. Fantastic game as well. Good mechanics. And lastly, Silhouette Mirage. Uh, not that Silhouette Mirage is bad, but it is a particular flavor and it's very difficult. Fair. I, you know, I, I could agree with a lot of what you just said there. Uh, where do you land, Dave? I'm just going to mirror what Ben said. Um, so it, it, it might be close for me between Guardian Heroes and Radiant Silver Gun. But the fact that Radiant Silver Gun has Hitoshi Sakimoto on the soundtrack mm. immediately puts it up into like God tier status for me. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my, my favorite two composers of all time is, is Hideaki Kobayashi, you know, who did the Fantasy Star online soundtrack and then Hitoshi Sakimoto and um, also uh, Takanoma Mitsuyoshi as well. But but of I course. mean, the fact yeah. that it's got that, it just that does so much for me. I'm a musician. I love the music. And that fills me with the inspiration that I need to keep going with the game, even when it 
starts kicking my ass, you know? <laughs> so I love the soundtrack. I love the gameplay. I love the visuals. I love the cinematics, the story, you name it. It's an enjoyable game. And even though it's brutally difficult at times, it's still enjoyable. And folks who are not great at shmups shouldn't be, you know, discouraged from playing it because you can still do like what I do and just put it on monkey mode <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> clear the game with several continues, right? Um, you can still enjoy it uh, for what it is and have a lot of fun. So I rank Radiant Silver Gun as my top. Guardian Heroes is a close second. Um, it's beautiful. It's got a great soundtrack. It has a lot of cool things going for it. The fighting and beat em up mechanic is great. The three planes is, is a nice little touch. I love the fact that you can allocate your points to building your different attributes and kind of create your own uh, hero uh, with that like RPG element. And um, it's also got an amazing, uh, you know, six player brawl mode that folks should definitely check out with like 45 playable characters. And then Silhouette Mirage comes in third just because it is the least enjoyable game for me. It's got it where it counts when it comes to graphics. Sound is great, you know, although it wasn't anything that like really hooked me. Um, but it wasn't certainly wasn't bad. You know, I, I don't think any treasure game has like bad soundtrack. Um, just too much going on, not enough focus, lots of lots of ideas that just weren't crystallized perfectly, you know? And so mm -hmm. I feel like that's going to be the most demanding game. That's going to be the, the biggest challenge. Um, and for folks who are up to the challenge, who love treasure games and want something more, definitely check out Silhouette Mirage. For everyone else, check it out just to see what we're talking about. And I'm pretty sure you'll agree that it's the least accessible of the three. Nice. Okay, and then as for me, well, great minds think alike. And maybe as Chaz would say, fools seldom differ, but I would also rank them as Radiant Silver Gun number one, Guardian Heroes number two, and Silhouette Mirage number three. I mean, everything you guys have said about Radiant Silver Gun is the same for me as well. Wonderful game. All the elements come together. Plenty of C, whether, whether you're a hardcore gamer or more casual. You can pick this up when you want something really tough to get into, or if you just want a quick little casual play. Um, you know, Guardian Heroes, I love the experience system. Um, the visuals are fantastic. It really shows off what the Saturn can do. And then just to wrap up with Silhouette Mirage, you know, this is something that if you want a tough-as-nails game that's going to remind you who's boss, play that, you know. But it doesn't necessarily always work when you've had a full day and you just want a game to just sort of chill out and, and relax with. But that said, I mean, I think we're, we'd all agree that all of these are worthwhile experiences. I mean, if it's got Treasure's name on it, you know, you're, you're probably not getting a poor game. So, so yeah, so, you know, it sounds like recommendations all around and you've got our order. Uh, you know, this is the first time I think where we fully agreed to the man, you know, which way these games would go, but yeah, yeah, it's, you know, unusual, but, but here we are. So then we must know, you know, it, with that much consensus, I think that it's safe to say, right. Agreed. That uh, Radiant Silver Gun is definitely one of the games that you should experience if you have a Saturn or if you're thinking about getting a Saturn or playing Saturn, it's just, it's gotta be on that list uh, that short list of games that you experience. 
Agreed. All right. So with all that said, we want to thank you all for listening. I hope, and I know uh, so does Ben and Dave, that you found this enjoyable and that as a result, you're going to fire up your Saturn and pop in a treasure game, whichever one of the three that it'll be. But just make sure Radiant Silver Gun is number one. Okay. So with all that said, thanks so much, guys. And remember, you must play Sega Saturn. So long, everybody. Sega Saturn, shiro! As we come to the end of our cast, I want to give a shout out to our patrons, our VIP patrons and our All Access patrons, and just, you know, thank you all for, you know, your monthly contributions to Shiro, and, you know, it's this kind of support that allows us to, you know, fly out to events like PRGE and, and, you know, meet with folks in person and just generally allows us to continue to do what we do. So a huge thank you and a shout out to A Murder of Crows, Brock the Archivist, Emerald Nova, Ioannis Fetz, Michael Sabah, Nate Lawrence, Sega Steve, Shadow Mask, All Caps, Blue Moon 195, Cerulean, Chris Piper, Chris1997XX, Daniel Fredrickson, David Zaney, Derek Pascarella, Fat Drunk Friend Otaku, Gem Clash Orank, Justin, Mamdu Madwar, Normal Guy, Nutrageous, Robert Ramsey, Rowan Dinch, Stoneman, Tanuki Trev, and Young Money Sway. Again, thanks, you guys. You are the best. Treasures games were always targeted at hardcore gamers, and their proclivity to mash up genres and demand the player approach their games with purpose is evident in their three Saturn efforts. Guardian Heroes certainly sat well with its international audience, but the Saturn's fortunes beyond Japan's borders meant that the rest of their output stayed in its domestic territory. It's a real shame, as, as they are excellent games that now command a high price on the second-hand market. If you haven't given the games a try, there's really no time like the present. You won't be disappointed. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Until the next one. See you later. See you, guys. See ya. This podcast is a Shiro Media Group production. Sega Saturn, shoot!